0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Emmanuel Church Lurgan. At Emmanuel, our vision is to help rewrite the story of Craigavon, Ireland and the nations with the good news of the Kingdom of God. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. Um, so, yeah, oh, it's so good to be here. Honestly. It's like five years since we've been here on a Sunday morning and, and we've missed you we've missed you honestly it's so lovely to see the church growing in such a healthy way and uh, and as Rick said um I'm married to Stephen and we have three kids two of which are right one's in and and uh, and we just we just love this place we um uh, settled here when we were married but it was my church before that it's the only church I've ever known as home so um so it's such a joy to be here this morning Um, You know that we've been looking at this series. We're actually doing it in Portadown as well. And um, I believe that Jesus has actually given us really fresh insight and, uh, and and I think he's doing something really deep within individuals, but also within the church as we live out the expression of this across two different locations across the city. So I am very excited. I have an anticipation rising within me as to what Jesus wants to do. Now, because I'm looking at the clock, I'm not going to tell you what Dave said last week. I have a paragraph here that goes into how he looked at the first part of the verse. I'm just going to jump straight in. Um, I'm just going to have to drop that. Um, but it's uh, the thorny soil that we're looking at again today. We're looking at the second. Part of it and we're going to look at it in Mark 4, okay? So it says in verses 18 and 19, still others like seed sown among thorns hear the word. But the worries of this life, that's what Dave did last week, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things, they come in and choke the word making it unfruitful. And we're going to look this morning at the deceitfulness of wealth. And so when Jesus explains the meaning of this parable to the disciples, he is saying that the seed of God's word and the seed of the thorns sit together in the same soil. And when the conditions are just right, then they begin to grow. And the thorns are in competition with the seed of God's word that gives us life. But unfortunately, We all naturally have a dispensation towards sin in our hearts because of the fall. And the thorns can thrive within every single one of us if we're not careful. And I think it's actually really interesting. I'm not going to take it any further, but it's something that I think is really poignant. Isn't it interesting that Jesus actually had a crown of thorns on his head? And that's all I'm going to say about that. But one of the weeds or the thorns that Jesus refers to in this explanation is this deceitfulness of wealth growing within us. And I feel it's really, really important before I go any further, okay, that um, I I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying this morning, so I want to really make this very clear. Jesus is not saying that wealth or money is the issue. He is not saying that there's anything wrong with somebody being wealthy or somebody being rich. Because we, we have so many generous, wealthy people in our church who know how to steward their money um, so beautifully and have been very good and have been very careful about how they do that. What Jesus is really pointing at this morning is it's the deceitfulness that attaches itself, that rides on the back of wealth that is the problem, okay? Now, the teacher and me can't get away from a good old dictionary definition of deceitful, so let's take a look at what it means. Being deceitful means to lie, to mislead, or to otherwise hide or distort the truth. And I believe that the distortion of riches or the way of wealth can can, can mislead us over time is that we begin to kind of associate inner joy or inner satisfaction or peace or wholeness with the stuff that we have, okay? And with the false sense of freedom that we think money affords us. We mislead ourselves into believing the lie that when I can just get my house redecorated, you know, I've just got that room to, to do. The kids have wrecked the walls, I need to get it painted. Or when I can go on that holiday, or when I can get that latest phone in my contract that needs updated, or when I can change the car, or all of these things, we think that they are going to give us satisfaction. They're going to make us complete. And again, I want to make it clear there's nothing wrong with a good holiday. <laughs> it's important to build rest in. There's nothing wrong with new things. But when they drive us, when they become our reason for living, that is, our, that is the deceitfulness that we're associating with wealth. And the issue that I have with it, and I've watched this actually play out quite closely in people around me over the years, is that we're just putting plasters over our pain. We're just putting plasters over needs that were deep within our souls. And when we look to stuff to meet the needs of our hearts, things just go wrong. They just go wrong. And the truth is that stuff and money has actually nothing at all to do with our identity. The deceitfulness of wealth is that 100% of the time it promises more than it can or ever will actually deliver. That's the deceitfulness of it. And the deceitfulness of wealth actually creates within us a dependence on money for our security rather than our security coming from the Lord. We forget to depend on God for our identity. And one person in the Bible that we can see this played out really, really clearly with is Judas. Judas had an up-close personal relationship with Jesus. He had firsthand access to every kind of miracle, all the teaching, and he, he found himself deceived, having bought into the lie that he would get power and influence from wealth, Judas, the Bible tells us, helped himself to money from Jesus' ministry funds, so he stole. He complained that Mary wasted so much perfume that it was the equivalent to the year's worth of wages on anointing Jesus' feet, and of course we know that he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Poor Judas was deceived into equating people and kingdom principles against a monetary value instead of equating them against a kingdom value. He was misled into believing that what he could get was of more value than who he could worship. And instead of being dependent on and finding his worth in Jesus, Judas was dependent upon finding his value in money. And from this place of dysfunctional dependency on money, a desire then was stirred up within Judas for more of the hollow power that money could offer him rather than a desire rising up within him to get to know more of the heart of Jesus. And Judas fell into the trap of the deceitfulness of wealth, which then distorted his beauty of who actually was right in front of him. It distorted the beauty of Jesus. And that's when his life took a complete 180 degree turn. I suspect that that Judas also probably equated Uh, money with power and with influence and with position and I reckon this is just my theology so you can correct me afterwards if you think I'm wrong but I think he maybe got a bit of a kick out of the power that he could hold over the Sanhedrin when he was betraying Jesus and when he was leading them to him in Gethsemane and we know that the power that he thought that he had actually was really very hollow. Judas was misled into believing that wealth would actually secure his prestige but instead oh it so subtly tricked him onto the path that would lead to his downfall the deceitfulness that attached itself to money and interrupted Judas's life caused his destruction and when our view of Jesus is distorted it easily causes our destruction you see, the deceitfulness of wealth was running hard after Judas's destiny. And the only thing that it wanted it to do was to obliterate it. And it, it was able to do that. And I conclude when I look at Judas, you know, I think he probably started off with really pure motives. I think he loved Jesus. I think he wanted to get on board with what he was doing. I think his motives were pure. But he allowed the thorns to take over in his life. And that's how futile chasing stuff and getting worth out of money is. But instead, let's look at what Jesus says in Mark in chapter 10. He's talking to the rich man and he's telling the rich man, you've got to sell everything if you want to enter the kingdom of God. He says, in fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, many people believe that the eye of the needle was actually a gate, contained within the walls of Jerusalem if you can picture there's a a, you know a big gate that's open through the day for traders and travelers to come in and out but then at night they they close it shut to secure the city but they still need an entrance within it so they have a smaller gate within that that opens up you kind of see it in like Lord of the Rings and you know all those kind of movies I think there is a photograph to come with it. And so the smaller gate is the eye of the needle. I apologize about the quality of these photographs, particularly the very black and white one, but I wanted to show you what it was like for a camel to try and fit through it. It it looks like it might be kind of difficult, but it's not impossible. It's not impossible. In order for the camel to fit through the eye of the needle, the camel has to bow, the camel has to go down on its knees, it has to go low. And then the camel also has to strip everything that it's carrying off it. All of its goods, all of its riches need to come off it. And then the camel can fit through the eye of the needle. And so I think Jesus is trying to say, well, it's not impossible for a rich person to enter in, but it, it requires a radical change of our posture internally, a humility, a surrendering of all of our possessions To be empty handed and on our knees if we want to get into the kingdom. And I think that what Jesus is trying to really get at here and what he's trying to drive home is it's the deception that money can hold over all of us, over me. And I've, you know, the the battling that I've had to do even to pull this message together. The deception that money can hold over me and the pride that can attach itself to the possessions that I have, they become idols in my life. And they can hinder me and they can hold me back and they can hold you back from entering into the fullness of the life within the kingdom of God. Because the reality is, and again, I've seen this over the years so many times, our idols have a way of coming to the surface. Our idols have a way of making themselves known in our lives. And Bill Johnson says this, he says, you know, neither riches nor poverty create heart, but they reveal heart. They expose the stuff that's in us, that is not of the Lord. And you know, previous to this teaching from this particular parable that we're looking at in Matthew, Jesus had actually just finished delivering the Sermon on the Mount, and he stresses the importance of actually storing up treasures in heaven. And he lands this particular part of the teaching with Matthew 6, verse 24. He says this, you can't serve both God and money. You can't do that. And this word money, I know that loads of you know this, but it's the word mammon. And mammon means it's material wealth or possessions, especially as having a debasing influence. And it's really important that we're, you know, I wouldn't be doing God's word any justice, I think, this morning if I wasn't honest about this. We need to call a spade a spade here. The influence and the powerful lure of mammon is rampant, around us like never before like never before and the materialism that we quite literally wade through like it takes effort to get through it the, uh, the influence of it is is daily around us and money has a way of attempting to define our identity and I'm gonna tell you that its pursuit of that is insatiable it wants to wreak havoc and with it comes greed With it comes, like, one of my biggest bugbears, entitlement. There's no room for that in the church. There's no room for that in the kingdom of God. And with it comes a false identity of our view of our own success. Mammon is the love of money, of material wealth, of worldly riches, as, like, the chief significance and overriding name of living. That's what mammon is, right? And the deception of mammon, if we aren't careful, is that it becomes our sole focus in life. It becomes our driving force but the reality is, and Jesus makes it really clear, it chokes us. It snuffs out opportunities for the kingdom seed that God, the Father, He is so good, just wants to sow into our hearts. It can't grow when mammon has the upper hand. The deceitfulness of wealth is running hard after our destiny. The deceitfulness of wealth is trying to obliterate what God has in store for each of us as well. And money has this really subtle, sly kind of way of attaching itself to our ego, of giving us a false sense of power and preventing us actually from fully engaging in a life that is laid down for Jesus. And its influence can really very easily creep in. It can give us a false sense of comfort, of control. And again, so suddenly we find ourselves being fully reliant on our next paycheck and what is tangible around us than being fully reliant on the Lord and all of a sudden and this is the part that I think is just most grieving about it (laughs) we no longer value the mystery of God and we no longer value the faithful approach to living for him and to dying to ourselves i like, don't get me wrong, I totally empathise and understand the social expectations that are around us that are telling us to save and to batten down the hatches and to prioritise ourselves, and, 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 and I get that, and lockdown, if you need a toilet roller or pass to prove that, that that influence was really strong, okay, but out of that, it's like, it's, that's just sort of selfishness, isn't it, that's kind of self centeredness and it's the idea that, that, the, that the world kind of revolves around us. But when Jesus teaches us to give, he makes it really clear in Matthew 6 and verse 21. And this is the message version because I thought it was really fresh and beautiful. He says, the place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and you'll end up being. In other words, what we sow into now reflects where our heart is and where we chart our course for. And so in view of all of this, well, how do we guard against these thorns that have the potential to choke out the seed of God's word within us? And this is where I think Jesus teaching about kingdom principles of stewardship of our own money is actually really crucial. And it's an important part of all of our discipleship journey, right? When we take his teaching on board, we choke the thorns. And that honest to goodness has been my own experience. When I when I take this on board and when I live out the reality of it, I find that the thorns actually are the things that shrivel up within me. When we place our treasure in the kingdom, our heart just naturally follows course with that. Jesus teaches us to steward everything that he has given us with open hands. But living life with an open hand is always preceded by living life with a soft, open heart. It always has to come first, a heart which the Spirit has permission to keep soft and has free access to all of those distorted desires so that they can be dug right out. You see, the condition of the soil of our hearts always finds its base on our relationship with the Lord. Like every single time, there is no getting away from that. You can't separate those two things. When you try to, that's when a religious attitude creeps in. And so the first thing that I think that we need to do to deal with these thorns is to make sure that we are correctly aligned, okay? And what I mean by that is it's really useful to examine the soil of our own hearts and ask ourselves really seriously, like what, you know, in an honest to goodness way, what is my heart desire in this season of life? Psalm thirty-seven, verse four. You know this verse well. It says, "Delight yourself on the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart." Now, I'm gonna maybe just flip things on their head a wee, but I think we misunderstand this verse in the West. I think sometimes we can be really guilty of reading this verse that if we keep up our, you know, our side of the relationship with Jesus, where we read and pray and read and pray and read and pray, that Jesus is going to give us all the stuff that we want. But I don't think that's kingdom. How I understand this verse, and what I want to suggest to you this morning is maybe a more healthy biblical way of reading it, God will put the desires that are in his heart into our heart too, so that they become our desires as well. So when we delight ourselves in him, our desires are the desires that he gives us so that our hearts are aligned with his heart, okay? Okay. Because unless the desires of our hearts are aligned with the furtherance of the kingdom, unless, like Dave taught you last week, we're seeking his kingdom and his righteousness first, what's going to spring forth from the soil in our hearts is going to be choked unexpectedly by the thorns. And that causes like a false sense of security. And that's all wrapped up in money. That's all wrapped up in, in mammon. And for the kingdom seed really to truly take root and to be given room to grow with the greatest chance of flourishing into life-giving, transformative initiatives, Jesus has to have first place in our heart. It's that simple. It's that simple. When we delight in the Lord and we allow the seed of his word to ignite our soul and trigger fresh imagination for the kingdom, his seed gets the chance. To take root so that it can bear fruit, like Sarah said earlier on. And that's why as a church, we highly value the spiritual discipline of tithing. It is an undisputable biblical principle where we give at least one-tenth of our first fruit, sort of put it in modern day terms, one-tenth of our top line, at least, back to the Lord again. And we can see it right throughout the Old Testament. If you want references for it, they're going to flash up on the screen. I don't have time to get into it because I actually want to look at what Jesus says in the New Testament around giving. The tithe was like a standard expectation. And I think what Jesus is is pushing into here is actually over and above the tithe. But we're going to look a wee bit at the tithe first. So the first thing that we need to do is to make sure that we're correctly aligned. But I think the second thing that we need to do is give out of obedience, Jesus teaches in Luke 6:38. He says, "Give, and it will be given to you; a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you give, or sorry, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you." When we tithe, I'm going to make no apologies for this, and so I hope that you hear it with grace. But when we tithe, we're just being obedient. We're just being obedient to God. And at the same time, what I've found in my own life over the years is I've increased my own faith levels. And I've ensured that my heart is correctly aligned with God as the sole object of my worship. I began to tithe when I had a part-time job when I was about 17. and I remember, I think we were taught on this like in, in Union Street maybe, and I remember thinking, I can't, I was getting like 25 pound a weekend. I remember thinking, I can't give church 250 <laughs> 250 a week for the amazing teacher that I'm getting. And I and I truth be told, like I I didn't. I couldn't actually bring myself to give them two fifty, but I did tithe, okay. But from that point on for me, I remember being about 17 and thinking, this isn't this is a no-brainer thing. Tithing for us, um, tithing for me before we got married, but tithing for us as a family, it's just a non-negotiable. Stephen and I don't even talk about it. It's set up as a direct debit, and it's just like paying off the car insurance or paying off either the mortgage or anything else. It just comes out at the start of the month. So we don't even talk about tithing. It's just a given, okay? And you might be here thinking, do you know what? like you know, we're, we're trying to pay off this holiday. Like, you know, we, we need this holiday. Or, or my car's on its last legs, and if I tithe, like, I, I'm not going to be able to get a car. Or you might even be somebody in the room this morning who's like, Do you know, I, I can hardly pay for the food in the house. I'm struggling to make a decision over heat and food. But I'd love to challenge you this morning, and I think I can say this with some authority, because there's been evidence of this in our own lives I think God wants to challenge you on that this morning. I think God is calling out obedience on that this morning because when we give, we reveal what is in our heart. And having like, lived away in, in other countries for some time, I think one of our greatest weaknesses in the West is that perhaps we have become reliant on our next paycheck instead of being reliant on the Lord. Because I can tell you this, and I've seen it over and over again. Whatever money promises you, God promises you more. God promises you more every single time. And often money and the deceitfulness that attaches itself to it acts in a way that causes us to bypass the spiritual processes which are actually essential for our own growth and our own formation. It can choke the promises and the destiny of God on our lives. We teach our kids to tithe. It's really important that they grow up with a spiritual kingdom economy mindset rather than a world economy mindset. And we try to teach them that it's actually more than the tithe, that it's about being generous. And so when Jesus is talking about Luke 6, 38, about um, giving and it being given back to you again, I think he makes it very clear that it's just obedience, like I've said. Most of his audience would have known that that's a part of the law, that's just what you do. But I think he's actually leaning into a whole other level of generosity. Because when we give, we take our eyes off our own needs. And it's actually a really good way of monitoring the treasure in our heart. You see, the principle of giving is a discipline. And a discipline is doing something that you know is good for you, even when you don't feel like it. And I'm sure like us, there might be many in the room who kind of feel often that there's more month than there is money. Um, I don't know, it's, we just haven't quite recovered from Christmas, I'm not sure. But, uh, but we have seen it over and over again in our lives. Like We never, ever go without when we are disciplined and generous in this area. And, and, you know, as a leadership across the churches, we just know actually it's not about how much you give. It's just about entering into this process for the sake of being disciplined I'm just leaving out loads of notes because I'm looking at the, the clock here. The third point that, um, that I think that we can do here, so uh, we, we check our alignment, we give out of obedience, but the third point is that we give generously. <coughs> now, I shared this story in Portadown last year, um, but it just continues to like, knock the socks off us. Um, as most of you know, we're, we're working towards our new building in Portadown, and, and we know of a family who, who gave really sacrificially. It worked out, if you can picture the couple, this is the couple, uh, it worked out at like half of one of their yearly wage that they gave away, and they, d- they didn't really think anything more about it. They were being obedient. It's what they both separately felt God told them to give, and they did it, and it was money, to be honest, they could have used for holidays, they could have used for, you know, their retirement, they could have used for anything, but they, f- they, they felt really, really strongly that they give this amount of money away. The next week, the other partner within the marriage—I love this—they got an annual pay rise for the same amount that they had decided to give away. And I, I like—I it wasn't hundreds of pounds, okay? It wasn't hundreds of pounds that they gave away. It was thousands of pounds that they gave away, and the other person in the marriage got an annual pay rise. So they weren't just getting it back once. God in his generosity and with his beautiful father's heart saw their heart in giving and decided that he was gonna honor them. I think he saw that they could steward the money well and their obedience, not that they had an expectation that they were going to get anything, but their obedience caused them to step into blessing. And I'm not getting in, into any like ropey theology here that, you know, if you give, you're going to get loads. But that's not what I'm getting into. But I just, I just recognized God's heart in that moment for that particular family, you know? And it was just beautiful. I think their desire and the, the decision to give money was for Jesus's kingdom to break through. And I think God saw that and God honored that. And it's really important as well that I clarify because I don't want anybody to misunderstand. We all have a responsibility to pay our bills. We all have a responsibility to provide for our family. Okay, so we need to also steward our money really, really wisely. But I believe there's a challenge for us as the church this morning. We gotta look at the soil conditions and see if there are any thorns around this area growing up within us. We've gotta check our alignment. We've got to give out of obedience and we have got to give generously to help seed the kingdom destiny and imagination. Like, don't get me wrong, Like, I love a good holiday. <laughs> it's really important that if your car is on its last legs, or last wheels, or whatever it might be on, that, that we look after our family as well. I know the pressure of trying to provide good experiences for the kids, but you know something, I've got to be honest, I want Jesus more than I want those things. I want him more. I want to see his kingdom break through more than I want a holiday. And I, as I've been praying for you guys this week, and even, if, even as I've woken up this morning, we were just talking about this. I just had this ugh, feeling within me. I think there might be some people in the room this morning that that maybe that you're aware of this in your life, okay, and you feel like like you want to do a bit, of, a bit of business with Jesus again, that you want to just reestablish your alignment and focus in on the fact that he is Jehovah Jireh. He is our provider. Or there might be some of you in the room, you're like, do you know, I never want to go there. I want to have some room to actually pluck out the seedlings of thorns that are beginning to grow. And so I'm going to, um, to invite the worship band back up again just to sing this last song because I couldn't get it out of my head <laughs> all week. And I'm going to read a verse, (coughs) and then I'm going to get out of the road, because I think there might be some people this morning who need to do a wee bit of business with Jesus around this, and so we want to give you some room to do that, okay? We want to finish off with this verse, because do you know what? God's word speaks for itself. I don't need to say anything else. Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8 say, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count." everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. For more information about our church and all that we do please visit our website at emmanuel-church.co.uk